Good morning, everybody. Welcome to all of you who are here and those of you who are watching on video at one of our other campuses around Iowa. Uh, I, before I dive into the sermon, I just want to say here in West Des Moines, we just heard uh, a wonderful, beautiful ensemble of singers from Iowa State, the ISU singers. Uh, you guys were absolutely awesome. Thank you so much. Praise God for you. Thank you for coming today. Great. And those of you up at our Hope Ames campus, they're coming back home uh, soon. And there's Bree, one of the worship leaders, front row, uh, and others who I recognize in the group too. It's really, really great to have you guys here. That second piece that you sang, Oh Lord God, is by a Russian composer who uses the psalm as the basis for that for that uh, arrangement, and it's all about, at the end, the glory of God. The Greek word for glory in the New Testament is doxa, where we get the word doxology. It's the place where heaven meets earth. It's the place where we get glimpses of God's future for us, the, the big dreams that God has for us. And so this, this humble Russian composer is gifted to, to put this beautiful piece of music, this arrangement together, and it points us to the power of God's glory, these, these places in life where we get glimpses of that which is yet to come, the hope and the future that God has for us. And that's really kind of a nice bridge back into this movie, which is all about dreams and trying to find moments and glimpses of, of what could be in this world and, and having these big dreams for us. The scene you just saw is from the movie La La Land, which is a critically acclaimed musical uh, that won the Academy Award for Best Picture last year for a minute and a half. Uh, and then another great movie was given the Best Picture, so they both got it for, a, well, Moonlight got it for, for the rest of time. But uh, La La Land was awarded for a little while. It was, it was a great movie, but I didn't feel that way when I first saw it. My wife and our daughter took me, dragged me to this movie, is more honest, uh, in the theater a little over a year ago. And or maybe it was a lot over a year, I don't know when. It was over a year ago anyway, and when I got there, what they didn't tell me, see, I was getting duped. They didn't tell me it's a musical. They just said it was a critically acclaimed movie, everybody's raving about it, you gotta see this, it's gonna be great. They didn't tell me it's a musical, and, and I know some of you love musicals, but then there's those of us who just can't see. I hadn't seen anything worse since Mamma Mia, I thought. And it, was, <laughs> it was starting out with this six-minute over-the-top, uh, uh, grand kind of intro song on a, on a traffic jam crowded freeway in Los Angeles where spontaneously, because this happens, people start jumping out of their cars and singing about another day of sun. And they're dancing and flipping around and they're pulling up the back of a truck and there's a, there's a percussion band, of course. That's how the, they roll, I guess. And they just start playing and singing. And I'm looking for the exits. I, I'm thinking, this is just, I have to fly out of here as fast as I can. Uh, but then 10 minutes later, I was in. I mean, I was all in. Because this movie has some substance underneath the style. It's, it's, this, it's this movie about big dreams and visions and, and pursuing those and being in hopefully healthy relationships where, where both the man and the woman are supporting each other in their dreams. And that comes through in this movie and telling each other hard truths and, and doing it for the sake of love for one another and, and that love angle too. And, and then there's this other beautiful subplot between innovation and tradition and, and, and jazz is kind of the crux of that. And it, it's glorious. It's, 
in many ways, this glimpse, this glorious glimpse of, of a God who wants to do life with us, that we sing out, oh Lord God, as I walk through this life, that I would walk with you. Let me ask you this question as we get started. What, what's your dream? That's a sensitive question. It's, it's got some landmines in it. I, I realize that. Because some of you hear that and you're like, ah, emotionally you just want to shut down. He's like, well, I had a dream. Or I had a lot of dreams. And those dreams were crushed. And so when I hear about dreams, I, I, I think to protect myself, what I do is what Mia was doing. Played uh, in, in that opening scene, she, she says to Sebastian, her friend and this person she's fallen in love with, that I, I, what if I'm not good enough to audition for this movie? What, what if I don't get it? Because I've been, I've been rejected over and over and over again, and I don't think I could take one more. So she's retreated to the house where she grew up in, in Nevada. Sebastian drives all the way out from L.A. to pick her up, and, and you heard the dialogue, and he says, I'll be here tomorrow morning, and you either will or you won't. But Sebastian knows this is Mia's big dream, and he wants to support her in it. He wants to do everything he can to make sure that she realizes it, if there's any potential to realize it. That's love. That's a healthy relationship where men and women are lifting each other up and supporting each other. It's biblically based, even. The Bible gets misunderstood. It, it, people think that it says that, that men should lord it over women, and what it actually says is submit to one another. The relationships are best when men and, men and women are both submitting to one another. That's what Ephesians 5 actually says. And then it gives details. Men submit to your wives. Wives submit to, to your husbands. It all comes together as a part of God's plan when, when we find our alignment with God's word. So what's your dream? What's the big dream you have? If you say those dreams are squelched, the opportunity, the window is closed, it's not going to happen. I get that. I understand that. I've had dreams. I wanted to be on the Harlem Globetrotters when I was a kid. I don't think that's going to work out. <laughs> we have dreams. Some of them are a lot more serious than that. Some of them are a lot more heartbreaking than that when they don't come true. But the Bible, from beginning to end, tells story after story after story of big dreams that God gives to people for the sake of living them out and for the sake of His glory. There's that word again. Of heaven crashing into earth, at least for a moment or for a time or for a season or for a generation that God's glory would be revealed, that his, his light would shine. And that comes because we get a glimpse, we get a vision of the dream that God has for us. There are lots of dreamers in the Bible. One of the first ones we meet is in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can open there, or just get your Bible apps out, or just listen in. If you don't have either one, that's fine. One day, verse 1, Exodus 3, one day, Moses... This is the central story of the whole Old Testament. It's really all about a big dream. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Moses led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Well, that doesn't happen every day. See, a lot of times I think we look back on these stories and we just assume, well, he's Moses, so he's seeing these visions from God every day. No, no, no. He's 80 years old. He hasn't seen one yet. 
That's the other part of this story I think that we miss is that Moses is 80 years old. He's had a lot of other dreams that didn't get realized. He could be like Mia in that opening scene and say, I just don't want to put myself out there again to have my soul crushed. I, I just don't want to be disappointed again. I don't want to have another dream evaporate. I, 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 I can't take it. My heart can't take it. It's too much. Too much rejection. Moses was 80 years old, and as far as we know, he was content to live out the rest of his years as a shepherd living out in the countryside. He was done. Just writing it out. But he got home, or he brought his shepherds to this part of the wilderness near Mount Sinai, and there's this bush, and the bush is on fire, but it isn't burning up. Can you imagine if you went home today, wherever you reside, your house, your townhome, your condo, your dorm room, uh, whatever it is, and you walk up to that to that bush that you always see and it's engulfed in flames only it's not burning up would that get your attention it would get mine and then add to that the next thing in this story is Moses well I don't know if it sounded exactly like that but that's the next verse Moses now Moses is like ah! he's an 80 year old shepherd just riding it out big dream time is done Windows of opportunity are locked shut. Here I am, Moses replied. I know we tend to think of like 35-year-old Charlton Heston at this point as Moses from the Ten Commandments, from the old classic movie by Cecil B. DeMille. But this is, uh, this is 80-year-old Bible Moses. And he's freaking out. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Do you really think Moses was in danger of getting any closer at that point? Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. I think that's beautiful. Your sandals don't belong in my presence. They're, they're not holy. Verse 10, skipping down. Now go, God says to Moses, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Here's my big dream for you. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel who are living as slaves out of Egypt, into the freedom of a new life in a promised land. But Moses protested to God, saying, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I? Wrong question. What Moses should have been asking is, who are you, God? You see, in our humanness, when we are confronted by some big vision or some big dream or what maybe could possibly be if all of our wildest dreams came true, the temptation is to say, yeah, but who am I? I'm just an ordinary person. There's no way I could ever see these things. And in a religious, spiritual sense, Moses could say, I don't have the spiritual resume for this. I've got kind of a dark, checkered past. I've done some things I'm not proud of. I don't know scriptures as well as other people do. I'm not a, I'm not a religious leader, for crying out loud. Who am I, God? Why would you pick me? Who am I to stand before the Pharaoh, who's the most powerful human being on the face of the earth at the time, and he leads the most powerful army? Who am I? I'm an 80-year-old shepherd whose dreams have evaporated and passed. Hear this. You're never too old. You're never too young. God has a plan for your life. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
Plans to give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. I have a plan for your life. I didn't just make you and spin your life out into existence and creation and I'm watching for sport, God says. I know how many hairs are on your head. I know when a sparrow falls from the sky. I know details of your life you don't know, our maker says about what he has made. And I love you. And I have a plan for your life. I have a future and a hope for you. And I want you to discover that. In fact, it could be said that one of the most important challenges in our life, whether you see this as a spiritual thing or just a practical down-to-earth thing, it's the same conclusion. One of the most important things we could ever do in life is figure out what we're here for. What's the point of my life? What's the purpose in fact, it's the most frequently asked question we get as pastors. I've been the pastor here in this church for over 25 years, and I get asked a lot of questions, but the most frequently asked question is, how do I know God's plan for my life? How do I know? Well, I think it starts by opening up some of those windows that you thought were locked shut, and not saying you're too young or you're too old, or people say, well... Uh, uh, when I graduate, or when I get a job, or, or maybe if I get married and settle down, or if we have kids, or when our kids get settled, or, or when, they, when they leave the house, when we're empty nesters, or when we retire, when are you going to go? When are you going to live that out? When are you going to ask God? Because if you want to know the short answer to that question, and I'll dive into it deeper at our page two service on Tuesday night, how do I know God's plan for my life? I'll take you through the eight steps. But if you want to know the short version, it's ask God. Matthew 7, 7. When's the last time you asked your maker what he made you for? Why did you create me? What's the purpose? Doesn't it make some logical sense that if there is a creator, we would check in with him, especially if this God gives us access through prayer? God, show me what you want to do. Show, show me. Show me what your big dreams are. And here's another important kind of point. It's not about saying, God, here's my dream. Come and bless it. This is where a lot of good people trip up. But if you unpack that just a little bit, you start to realize how selfish that is. God, this is my dream. I want to be famous. I want to be big stuff. I, 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 want, to, I, want, to, I want everyone to know who I am. I want to be popular at school. I, I, I want to get that promotion at work. I, I, I want to have a bigger house. I want to have more cars. I want to have more stuff. I, I want to use you as a means to an end, God. That's prosperity theology. And it's one of the most dangerous heresies in the world today. It's teachers and preachers of God's word who misalign it and commit spiritual malpractice by saying God is a means to an end. God is some sort of genie in a bottle who's here. The more, if you just have a little bit of faith in him, then you're going to become rich and famous. If you just put a little trust in him, then you're going to get everything you want and your life's going to be perfect. And on the dark side, the flip side of that same coin, of course, if you're sick, if you're poor, if life isn't going well, if you're brokenhearted, must be your faith. That's not what the Bible says. We have a God who goes far deeper than that with us who calls us to something more, who has a higher purpose for us. And so the goal isn't saying, God, here's my dreams. Let me use you to bless them. And when you don't, well, God, where are you? What's your problem? I've got a real crisis of faith now because you're not blessing all the stuff I want to do for me. God says, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about you. Turn the person on your right and left and say, it's not about you. Whatever campus you're at right now, it's not about you. 
Oh, I know, the world tells us over and over again, it's all about you. It's all about what you want. It's all about doing it your way. Who am I is the wrong question though. The right question and the one Moses eventually learns to ask is, who are you God? Me before Pharaoh, I don't have a chance. Me doing what I want, that's not what you made me for. Who are you? You before Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't have a chance. And I'm ready to go. Although for the next two chapters, there's this almost comical dialogue in Exodus 3 and 4 between Moses and God, where Moses has unbelievably uh, bad excuses. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not very eloquent. I I don't even know what to call you. What will I say? What will I wear? What am I going to do with my beard? I mean, he doesn't say that, but he says a lot of that. And over and over and over again, God says, ah. See, what we learn from that is when God calls you to do something, and if you say no, God's not going to stop. He'll continue to knock on the door of your heart until you open that door. You were made for this, and you were made for more than you think. You were made to live out your life, and it doesn't have to be some grand public fame kind of pursuit. It could be something very subtle, very behind the scenes, but absolutely just as impactful, just as important. The Bible says the body of Christ is like jazz. It's all these different pieces, all these different members of the body of Christ. That's the church as it's supposed to be biblically. Coming together as one. And we play our song together. And we don't quite know what's going to happen in this song. And every time we sing it, it's new. And it's not just what we sing when we gather together as a church. It's the songs we sing by the way we live our lives in our daily lives. Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday. When it's not about us, when it's not who am I, or God, come and bless my dreams. When it's who are you, God, let me get on board with the dreams that you have for my life. Well, now that's when things get really fun. Mm, Fun's not the right word. That's when you find joy that's untouchable. Your circumstances in a fallen, messed up world will never be perfect. But you'll have joy no matter what. You'll have a peace which passes all human understanding. The world will be like, how can you be so peaceful in the midst of all that stuff you have to endure right now? Well, it's because I have a deeper love. The glory of God, heaven hits earth for me. I catch a glimpse of what I was made for. And I live out that dream in my daily life. When I first started at Hope over 25 years ago, I... um, didn't have this all together, I'm confessing. It was a little bit too much about me, and God completely cleaned that out of me. Through a series of events, in just a few weeks, I was on my knees, humbly confessing, repenting, saying, God, I've been asking the wrong questions. I've been saying, God, this is my vision for your church. Come and bless it. And what I needed to learn was, it's not about me, it's about you, God. What do you want to do through Lutheran Church of Hope? Because I saw how far I could take it in just the first few months I was here, and it was a train wreck. It was a disaster. We went from 15 or 20 people to 12. (laughs) We're going the wrong way. And four of those people were householders. They were in my family. They had to be there. (laughs) So that was a defining moment for me. I, I think in many ways it was a defining moment for this church because then God started sending people to this church early on who got this. They wanted to know, what would a church look like if we did this God's way instead of ours? If we 
surrendered it to God and it wasn't about us and we just went along for the ride? What if we gave God all the glory for the good stuff that happens here instead of taking credit for any of it? What, what, what if we say, God, what would a church look like if we followed your big dreams for us? I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, the Bible declares, will continue his work until it is finally finished. Here's a picture of, this is not my son, this is me. 25 years ago and my wife who hasn't aged a day. How did that work? You look the same and I look 25 years older. There's our two sons at the time. We didn't have our daughter. Jonathan's three. Danny is one. Look what God does, just as an example. 20-some years later, here's one-year-old Danny doing his best La La Land impression for a silly video we made for the launch of the new campus of Lutheran Church of Hope in Ames and for Iowa State. This kid becomes that minister for the church. God takes a little church that's grown from 20 to 12 <laughs> and turns it into a multi-site campus with six different campuses around central Iowa that raises over a half million dollars to buy a home for a local mission so they can reach out to young women in this community in a way that nobody else does, that plants over 200 churches in Ghana, Africa, in villages where they don't have churches, that digs clean water wells in all of those villages too to change the life expectancy rates, that starts missions and ministries all over Des Moines that we've given away like Meals from the Heartland, Look what God can do when we don't take credit for any of it. And please hear my heart in this. I'm taking credit for none of this. The only thing we've done really, really, really well and consistently is surrender this church to God. Say, so we would like to see what you can do through us, the jazz music you can play out there. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your good to prosper you and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope so that you can dance your dance. But let me ask the question this way. When you dance with God, who leads? See, the problem with a lot of our spirituality is it's, it's so shallow. It's all about us. It's about tapping into a spirituality as a consumer. What can I get out of this? What's in this for me? What, what, where are the benefits? Christianity is the opposite of that. The church, biblically speaking, what we're supposed to be is the opposite of that. We're not consuming, we're serving. We're, we're giving of ourselves. And we're letting the light of God's love shine for us and through us. Overwhelming us, saturating us, and then naturally pouring out of us. Our cup overflows, Psalm 23 says. And that's where the passion comes from. When you're looking for God's dreams for your life, look for your gifts, look for your passions, and look for the opportunities. It's gotta be all three, folks, because if it's just a gift but not a passion, it's not gonna be sustainable. If it's a passion but not a gift, ooh, you're gonna hurt the church. Like if it was my passion right now to sing a medley of songs from La La Land as a soloist, a cappella, that might be a passion for me, it's not, but let's pretend it is. That might be a passion for me, but it clearly wouldn't be a gift. I should not do that. That's just love for you. So it's gifts and passions, but it's also opportunities. Finding those opportunities coordinated to, so that you play your jazz piano with the jazz saxophone, and even though they're two different instruments, they work together for the greater good. And the song starts to sing all the more. That's the glory of God, the doxa.
O Lord God, glory be to God. When that happens, God's dreams start to run through us. And we start to ride the waves that God provides instead of manufacturing our own. We start to set the sail of the church to the wind of the Holy Spirit instead of trying to blow by ourselves. Get this boat moving. You see, that's the problem in the church. A church that is in free fall numerical decline in North America. To say that it isn't is to be in denial, and denial's not healthy ever. It's in decline in North America and Western Europe. That's not me saying, oh no, the sky's falling, the church isn't going to survive. The church is fine. Globally, the church has never been growing faster in the history of planet Earth. The church is more than fine. The church is thriving globally, worldwide. Rumors of the demise of Christianity are incredibly false and overblown. But in this country, we're in free fall numerical decline. There are beautiful exceptions to the rule. This is one of them. But that's not to say, oh, well, we're right and everybody else is wrong. But it is to say something that I think is important. It's about humility. It's about whose church is this, ours or God's? And I don't know what's going to happen for sure, the details and the future of this church, but I hope we always get that one right. Because if we do, if we always surrender this church to God, it's going to be a good ride. It's going to be a faithful ride. There's too many churches in North America and Western Europe that are more about the institution of the church than the mission of the church. Too many churches that focus more on making budget than making disciples. Too many Christians in too many churches focusing more on self-righteously condemning the immorality of the world around us instead of proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is transformational to the world around us. And that's been our story. That's what we've seen. It's the power of God's love. That's where our passion comes from. Our passion to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ comes from this dream that God gave to us to make a bridge, to build a bridge between God's love and a world that doesn't know it. And to see what happens when that glory happens, when heaven meets earth, when the bridge is crossed, when people encounter their, their maker for who their maker truly is, instead of just seeing the church's abuse and scandal and misrepresenting Jesus Christ, all of things that are true, 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 true. And it gets all the headlines. But here's the danger of being a part of a culture that rejects church and says, well, I'm all for spirituality and God. I just don't want anything to do with his church. God wants you to have something to do with his church. According to this God that you're okay with or this spirituality in scripture that you're okay with, the scriptures say the church is the hope of the world and there is no plan B for this plan A that God has. And the church is the body of Christ and the church is the bride of Christ. Be careful about dismissing the bride of Christ to Christ. Be careful about just throwing that baby out with the bathwater. Look for the health. Look for, look for churches wherever God takes you in the rest of your life. Look for churches that humbly get this one faithfully right, where they say, God, this is your church. We want to see what you do through us instead of how great we are or it's all about us. Then we start to see God's plans for us, his future and his hope for us. Sebastian in this movie, La La Land, is a parable of this, a metaphor, an illustration of this, has a passion for jazz. He's an evangelist for jazz. 
Mia hates jazz. As you watch this scene, substitute the word church for jazz. I couldn't help but do that when I was in the theater watching this the first time. And by the end of the scene, it was all I could do not to stand up and go, yeah, come on, church. Only it wasn't about church at all. It was about jazz. And people would think I'm weirder than I, well, than they already do. But his passion is pouring out. And he's trying to lead me not to throw all jazz out because of Kenny G. He's trying to lead her to realize, in the same way I am, don't throw the whole church out because of some bad apples, because of some abuse, some scandals, and some misrepresentation of Jesus Christ. Find true jazz, true church. Take a look. That pretty much sums up our approach to church. (laughs) We're going to do whatever God calls us to do, whatever, whenever, wherever, as long as it's pure, Jesus, as long as it's the gospel, the good news of God's love poured out for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, I become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel so that I might save some. That's God's dream for his church. And the way this pours out most profoundly and most powerfully is through love. Love is the primary theme of the Bible. If you're looking for a faithful church, look for love. Do they love people beyond their walls? Do they, do they care or only about themselves and their own stuff? Or do they have a vision, a dream, a God-sized dream for reaching out to the world around them? When you look at individual folks and when you look at your own life and you assess that, how much love is pouring out of you? Or is it all about you? Is it all about what you can get from people? What you can consume from people? What you can take from the world? No wonder so many in our world are so frustrated and wandering, and so lost. Because somebody lied to them and got them to buy into the lie that it's all about you. It's all about getting as much as you can for yourself. And that's how you'll be happy. That's how you'll find joy. Ask the people in this church community who've achieved that. What makes them happy? Ask them if it's all those things, if it's all that stuff, if it's getting more toys, bigger houses, bigger cars, more vacation homes, all those things. Is that the thing? Is that the ultimate? Or is there something deeper? Is there something higher? The Bible says it's love. John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible, preached on that last week. God so loved the world. Mark 12, Jesus says no commandment is greater than love. Colossians 3, above all put on love. And on and on it goes, all the way down to the love chapter, which you'll hear at half the weddings you go to this summer. Love is patient and kind, not envious or arrogant or boastful or rude. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This love never ends. As for all these other things in the world, they will cease. Even religious things, even spiritual things. We can make religion an idol too. We we can reduce it and minimize it and and make it all about who's the most religious, who's the most righteous, who's, who's got the best spiritual resume, who's doing the most stuff. We're not here to compete with one another. We're not here to compete with other churches. We're here to cooperate. We're here to be the body of Christ. We're here to play our instruments together with their instruments and make music. 
to let God's light shine for the world around us, to let love pour into us and overflow out of us. This kind of love never ends, the Bible says. The Greek word for it in the New Testament is agape. It's the uh, the word that's translated into English as love over and over and over again, all throughout the New Testament. You might know that there are four different Greek words for love in the New Testament. What you probably don't know is that the word agape is a word that the Greek-speaking world didn't know until the New Testament was written. Agape originated in the scriptures of the New Testament. This deepest love, this highest love, agape love is a love that is grace-based, a love that we receive from God that is undeserved and it's free. We can't do anything to get it. We can't do anything to earn it. God gives it to us. That's what makes grace amazing. That's love that's an agape love. That's the love in John 3.16. That's the love in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. The love that's patient and kind that never ends. And it's a word the world didn't know, wasn't in our vocabulary until Jesus Christ showed up. Until God's love was poured out for the world in a whole new way. In a deeper way. In a more powerful way in a more transformational way. Former First Lady Barbara Bush's funeral was yesterday and she was a spunky person. And this isn't about politics, right or left. This is just about something she said which caught my attention. At the end of your life, you'll never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. All the achievements, right? That's what life is all about when it's all about us. Nothing wrong with caring about these things or saying these things are important. Of course they are. You don't have to dismiss it completely. But she goes on to say, you'll regret time not spent with a husband, a friend, a child, a parent, a loved one. True. Martin Luther King put it this way. He said, I believe that unconditional love will have the final word. That's what scripture reveals too. Love is the greatest gift because it never ends. You take it with you when you go. You continue to share it. Those relationships last. The stuff you buy, the stuff you purchase, the stuff you achieve, it's all gone in the end. But love remains. And that's why love is the greatest gift. Billy Graham famously said about the church, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. That's our job. Too many churches, too many Christians, it's all about our self-righteous conviction of other people, our judgment of other people, and and we, we miss the main point of the Bible. This is not some sort of side tangent issue in Scripture. This is the whole point for which Jesus came into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's this love, it's this word that the world didn't even know until Jesus showed up. That is for you and God wants you to share with the world around you. It's this love. So 1 Corinthians 13 says, let's read this together. If you can see a screen, whatever campus you're at, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. Oh, I wish it did for me and Sebastian. That's my only issue. Like, I get to vote. It doesn't matter. But it's my only issue with this movie is in the end, me and Sebastian don't end up together. I mean, it's a musical. Who do they think they are taking themselves this seriously, bringing realism into romance? What's, it's a musical. Everybody lives happily ever after in musicals. And it's an unapologetic musical. But in the end, because, you know, they want to be a little more realistic than that, they, they don't end up together because they're pursuing their own individual dreams. You see, that's the part that really breaks my heart. 
Had they never heard of a long-distance relationship? She could be in Paris pursuing her dreams with his full support. He could be back in L.A. pursuing his dreams with her full support. And they could FaceTime each other. And they could connect. And they could have a long-distance relationship. So I find that unrealistic, actually. Partly because I know in the end there isn't anything greater than love. The love we get to share with each other. Love the people around you. Love your family. Love your friends. Love your classmates. Love your coworkers. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. You see, that's where Christianity contrasts, right, with the rest of the world. Love everybody. That's our job. That's God's biggest dream for us. What kind of an impact can this church continue to have on this community? If we live that out as God's biggest dream for us, that you realize wherever you go, you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Wherever you go the rest of today, wherever you go tomorrow, the rest of this week, you are called to live out God's big dream for you in either grand, big public ways or, or, or private behind-the-scenes ways or somewhere in between or all of the above. But you're called to do this. This is the part of the song we sing in chorus with one another. We are called to love. We are called to let our light shine in this way because this kind of love, it never gives up. It never loses faith. It endures through every circumstance. This love lasts forever. As you pursue God's big dream for you, don't leave love behind. If you do, it's no longer God's dream. Now it's all about you. And you can't trust it anymore. If it's God's big dream for you, you'll get to take love with you. It'll always go with you. So at the end, me and Sebastian get a glimpse of what could have been, what might have been, but turned out not to be. Take a look and then we'll go home. Just remember how important love is. Uh, it's the end of their story in La La Land but it's not the end of love love never ends love lasts forever hold on to that love as you pursue your big dreams hold on to those relationships I'm not talking about unhealthy ones where there's abuse or unfaithfulness the Bible says if that doesn't change you can go you step out I'm talking about healthy relationships not perfect but healthy Hold on to those, pour into those, and learn to love the whole world around you because love is going to last forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. You see it at the movies and at church.